All right. Uh, well, look, without any further ado, I'm just going to swing straight into the word. Uh, today is uh, partly, uh, I guess, ministering the word of the Lord in regards to politics and the upcoming election, but partly it's also just information, just general information that we feel is important for us to know and to understand. Um, I should say at the front end that this is not a political rally here today. So therefore that means there's no hackling, okay? So there's no room for that. Uh, and in case you feel strongly that you need to be heard, just remember people haven't come to listen to you today. People have come to listen to me today. I'm the pastor in the house and uh, it's my turn to speak. And so I just ask you to be gracious. And uh, uh, just a quick story. Uh, in fact, let's pray and let's uh, absolutely make a proper start here. I'm kind of bouncing around a bit and just trusting God that he will speak to us through his word today. Father, we commit this time to you. Uh, we thank you, Father, that once again, that your word is living, it's powerful, it is strongly alive. And Lord, it renews our mind, it changes our heart, it brings faith, it brings understanding, it brings revelation. So we ask God today, Lord, for revelation, that Lord, uh, that you turn on the light uh, more brightly on the inside of us as the preaching and the teaching of your word takes place. And Father, once again, we commit uh, to being doers of the word and not hearers only. And we declare that we are teachable. We realize that we don't know everything yet, that we are still learning. And we thank you, Lord God, for the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is the true teacher of the church. We thank you, Lord, that you've got something to say. And Lord, we are ready to hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you haven't got an outline in your hand, uh, just raise up your hand and uh, the ushers are going to get you one. And uh, let's uh, spend the remaining uh, time uh, in the Word today. And this is the, uh, the major focus uh, for this morning. The title of this morning's message is Politics as God Sees It. Politics as God Sees It. You know, most people have an idea or an understanding or a view about politics, but I really want us to find out uh, or reaffirm how God looks at politics and in regards to the general elections that are coming up and, uh, and so forth. I remember when I first came to New Zealand about nearly 40 years ago now, um, and I've told this story before, but uh, uh, the, in the hotel that I was working in, there were some, uh, some uh, people there that uh, one of the ladies said, look, she said, my husband would like to take you out fishing. And I said, well, I love fishing. This is absolutely wonderful. I said, yeah, just let him know I'm ready anytime. And, uh, and she says, he just requested that there are two rules. He says that you will not talk about religion and you will not talk about politics. And, uh, and they were the rules. And uh, I said, well, uh, well, I can handle that. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, we're going to break all the rules today, all right? I'm going to break all the rules today. Uh, the reason why that man might have uh, suggested not to talk about religion, because people are pretty entrenched in their views, but many times more so in the area of politics. And so let's us be open today. And uh, as I said earlier on, I indicated that if I'm your pastor, then I'm asking you to give me hearing today. And I'm asking you to be open in your heart and to allow God to shift you. Uh, very shortly, I'm going to lay some things out visually. Um, and uh, and uh, I'm trying to get some understanding across. Um, my understanding is limited. I can only tell what I know. But even on that, uh, as I said, time can slip away so quickly. And there's so much to be said. And God is trying to teach the church. Uh, and so with that... Let me point out that we are less than two weeks away from the general elections on Saturday, the 23rd of uh, 
September, we've got the opportunity to go to the poll. In fact, I, I would recommend that it is not just an opportunity, but a duty to go to the poll and to choose the next leaders or the next lot of leaders for the next government, which will be the 52nd uh, parliament in New Zealand. The term will run for three years, and we've got an opportunity now uh, to uh, create a reshuffle if we feel there's one necessary, or uh, to just uh, uh, continue to do what we've done before um, with our votes. Some of the key dates that we need to be aware of is that Monday the 11th, which is tomorrow, uh, advanced voting starts. So what that means is if you're outside your electorate, I believe that's my understanding, that if you're outside your electorate, that you can already vote from tomorrow onwards. Overseas voting has already started last week, but of course that's not applicable to us. Um, Friday the 22nd of September, which is the day before the election, is the last date uh, or the last day to be able to enroll. Now, um, I would like to strongly encourage you to enroll, uh, to be on the electoral roll uh, if you're not already on there. Uh, it's actually very easy to, to do um, because Vanessa and I, we have lived in the same house for the last uh, however many years, so nothing's changed for us. But if you have moved recently uh, and so forth, then it's good to check up and just jump on the website election.org. Um, .nz, if that's what it is. You can do it online and register uh, or enroll. Uh, by the way, it is a legal requirement to be enrolled in New Zealand, um, though it's not a legal requ requirement to vote in New Zealand. But I believe for us as the people of God, there is a mandate for us to give God a righteous vote. Uh, in every election. So f I believe that for us it's not an option to say, well, I'm just not going to vote. Um, and sometimes people say, well, I don't vote because I don't know what's going on. Well, let's be informed. All right, let's educate ourselves. And I guess that's what uh, these next two messages will be about. Saturday then, of course, uh, uh, the 23rd election day, uh, 9 in the morning, the polls open, uh, will be open uh, until 7 o'clock in the evening, and then on 7 o'clock in the evening, some of, some of us will be riveted to our TV sets to find out what the election results are, because they're starting to make announcements as early, or indications as early as 7 in the evening, then it goes on, and by 10.30, uh, 11 o'clock, it's pretty much uh, a done deal. Um, when I say pretty much, uh, it's, you know, you know, sometimes there have been surprises if after that once they bring in the overseas votes and various other things. So with that, I want uh, to go to the Word this morning. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, uh, it tells us here, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and take it over and live in it. By the way, God wants us to take over. All right, it says, when you come into the land and take it over, God wants us to take over. All right, that was just as an aside. You take it over and live in it, and then say, I will select a king like all the nations surrounding me. Verse 15, you must select without fail a king whom the Lord your God chooses. From among your fellow citizens, you must appoint a king. You may not designate a foreigner who is not one of your fellow 
Israelites. And that brings me to my first point here today. Number one, that God wants to choose the king. Uh, God wants to choose the next prime minister. Uh, God wants to have a say in the matter. It is not for us, uh, it is not our prerogative to randomly swim or flip around and say, oh, I'll have this one, I'll have that one. We need to prayerfully arrive at a decision when it comes to placing our vote on the voting paper. Um, so it says here in verse uh, 15, it says, you must select, you must select. Um, and of course, this is speaking about a king. This is in the old days in Israel. And this is the pattern that God imposed upon them. Uh, of course, nowadays, uh, we still have a queen. Uh, and there's no point in changing the queen. She will be around until she moves on. Um, but praise God, we have an opportunity uh, to uh, get involved in the election that is coming up. So what we're doing is uh, uh, we are selecting, uh, we are placing in a location or we appoint someone to a position or reappoint somebody to a position. And it says here, the king whom the Lord your God chooses. So in other words, God wants to choose and we elect or we select the one that God has chosen. And uh, what we need to understand is of all the array of the political parties and candidates uh, that we have uh, available in this upcoming election, uh, God wants to make a choice uh, and God wants to communicate that choice with us um, and, uh, and then we select or we elect accordingly. At this point, I would like to recommend to you that there are entire political parties and many political candidates who are, as far as God's purposes are concerned, completely unsuitable for election. I mean completely unsuitable. All right. Um, so in other words, uh, it's not just like, you know, randomly swinging around. It's like we need to inform ourselves. What do they stand for? Uh, what are they all about? It's not what are they telling us, but what are they not telling us? What are they bending at the front end in terms of gathering some votes? And what are they not telling us? So we need to inform ourselves um, and not cast an unrighteous vote. Uh, of course, we haven't got all the time, uh, or not this week anyway, to talk about the electoral vote as well as the party vote and what all of that means. But we have major resource, printed information available on the information table at the back. Um, and everything is so easily available online these days that there's really no excuse for us to not educate ourselves uh, uh, if we not already uh, have an understanding uh, in this area. So in any given election, this is just a general statement, in any general election, um, what tends to happen is that many people neglect to vote. They just don't vote. All right? Then many people vote traditionally. And what that means is that they vote traditionally like they've always voted, like their family has always voted. They just do the traditional thing. Um, and uh, I'm kind of mindful that, uh, you know, very shortly we'll lay out the political spectrum. Uh, and then from your view, uh, this is the political left and this is the political right. And, of course, I'm standing the other way, so I need to make sure I'm not confusing you. Um, but, you know, I had a thought that sometimes Christians, even Christians, get so entrenched in their political view and in their political view 
that God finds it easier to get Christians, uh, you know, to get them to commit to attending church regularly. He even gets them to commit to tithing regularly. But it's very difficult for God to move somebody from the right to the left or from the left to the right if that's what he wants to do because people are so entrenched in their views. But for us, I think we need to be absolutely open and allow God to shift us around as needed. And very shortly, we will describe what things look like uh, to the best of our ability. So people vote traditionally. Then some people vote randomly. Random, like, you know, just, uh, just random. And sometimes they're called the undecided voters. And that's when, uh, as Peter referred to before, with all the election promises that are going on, uh, what we might call a lolly scramble, uh, it's, it's grabbing the undecided voters because people vote randomly and many times with their hip pocket uh, in mind. And that's why we get the goings on that we're getting in the election campaign, which should not affect a single one of us. All right. Um, then most people vote selfishly. All right. Just what's in this for me? What can I get out of this deal? Um, then some people vote tactically, um, meaning that they observe, they listen, they watch, they find out where the polls are at. Uh, and by the way, it's good to understand uh, what's going on. And it's good to understand for us to, in regards to some of the minor parties, the ones that are going to be there and the ones that are just not going to be there. If they're not going to be there and they're not going to meet the minimum 5% threshold of votes in the party vote and they're not going to get an electoral vote, there's no point in putting our vote there uh, because it'll be a wasted vote. All right, so we need to inform ourselves. So people vote tactically, but God wants Christians to vote biblically. All right, this is probably the most important point that I would like to bring across to us today is that God wants us to vote biblically. He does not want us to vote uh, traditionally, randomly, selfishly. Uh, he does want us to be wise about it. So to a certain extent, there is room for some tactical voting, but most certainly God wants us to vote biblically. Uh, God really does rely on us placing, on his people, that's you and me, God's people to place the tick where he wants it placed. And here's the thought. Very shortly, I'll lay out the political uh, spectrum and the political parties where I see them sit. And of course, some of that is arguable. We could maybe shunt them around a little bit. You know, there is uh, perhaps causes that are worthy of support in any political party. But God says, leave that to me. I need you, the people of God, to focus on a particular area, to focus on a, on a particular uh, uh, side, if you like, um, and to get behind particular, to particular uh, candidates. Uh, and God says, leave the rest to me. Now, with that, I would like to uh, swing over and uh, done a little bit of work this week to try to hopefully make things visual. So if you just bear with me for a moment, uh, I should be able to do this by myself. Uh, but if not, I'm sure I will have some helpers to come and help me. Praise God. Oh, well, I'm already losing a few things. All right. <laughs> okay, if you can take this and already start to go in that direction with it, that'll be awesome. All right, we've got another hook on the other side. If we can work towards that, then I would like to space out. By the way, we have a uh, 
copied information there. All right, we can pretty much hook it onto the end. Can I just grab that end there? I'll just uh, grab it here. Yeah, that's good. I'll just uh, let that droop down slightly. All right, thank you for being patient. Um, this is as good as it gets uh, as far as the tightening is concerned. So, um, let me just slide some of these people across because that's where they sit. So we want to do them the honor of placing them where they are or should be. All right. You can just slide that one further along and just basically space them out. So we bring that one along too. There we go. I have requested for three photographs to be printed, um, only three of the party leaders because I think that they are the most crucial people to know about. Praise God. All right. Okay. United Future wants to sit there. Okay. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Appreciate your help. And ladies, sorry, uh, Sandra, appreciate your help. All right. Praise God. There are about 15, 16, 17 registered parties uh, in this election. Of course, they don't all feature here and don't need to feature here. Some of them are just not going to be anywhere near, uh, near power. All right. Praise God. Let me just stand back and see what that looks like. All right. Uh, well, I think we want to shift uh, Mr. Seymour over a bit further. He's much more extreme than where we placed him. Okay. Conservative, well, that's good. That's good. Well, as I said before, you know, some of that is arguable. We could, and sometimes based on single policy, we might move him slightly this way, move him slightly that way. But this is the political spectrum uh, to the best of our ability. Let me just stand down here and have a look at that. So we got the Greens. We got Mana. Uh, that's Honey Haravera from... The far north, we got the Opportunities Party. We, of course, we got Labour. Um, the Maori Party, we got United Future. Peter Dunn, of course, he's resigned. They've appointed a new leader. Uh, we got the National Party. We got New Zealand First. We got the Conservatives, and we got the Act Party. Uh, and I think pretty much anybody that will be anywhere near uh, Parliament uh, is on the board. Uh, of course, in you know, in politics, they say never say never because there are surprises possible. Um, but otherwise, this is about the layout as I understand it to be. Um, and once again, these are general uh, positions for these people. Um, and, uh, and as I say, we could argue over whether they should be further over this way, further over that way. But certainly between left, between left and right, I think we got it pretty much uh, uh, spot on. So let me tell you that according to my view, the Christians should be the kingmakers in New Zealand. And here's what that looks like. 
You know, they used the term kingmaker um, because the reality is that under our MMP uh, environment, there it is highly unlikely that any of the major parties, which of course is national and labor, that either of them will govern alone. Um, and so what that means is that they need to get into a coalition agreement um, and, uh, and to be able to govern. And of course, the coalition partners are then some of the smaller, you know, the minor parties, smaller parties. And they say, or they have been saying that Winston, Winston Peters could be the kingmaker. In fact, Winston is trying to hide, and I don't think he's got any reason to hide. Let me just bring him out. Winston, you're doing okay. All right, let me, oh gosh, anyway. That's Winston Peters, by the way, all right. Um, so they say that he is going to be the kingmaker. But you know what? Um, I strongly believe that the Christians uh, should be the kingmakers. And here's how that, how that works. The government uh, is like the head uh, in the nation as far as the natural is concerned. And if the church were the neck, the neck can turn the head any way it wants to. Um, and the head doesn't turn itself. It's the neck that turns the head. And uh, here are some statistics that are freely available, uh, and you can find all sorts of information online these days, that in the 2014 elections, one million people did not vote, just didn't bother to go out. They were either too busy or couldn't be bothered or uh, just have for various reasons, just not gone out to vote. Now, uh, every five, six years, they do a census in New Zealand. Uh, and how many of you remember filling out the census papers? There's another one coming up, I believe, in 2018. And according to those census papers, uh, uh, we know that uh, in New Zealand, 48.9% of the population declared that they were affiliated to a Christian religion. All right, 48.9%. That's in the 2013 uh, census. So it would not be uh, wrong for us to call ourselves a Christian nation on that point alone. Would not be wrong at all. Now, I know that we've had people in the past that have said we're a secular state, but I think for you and I, I think we should be comfortable to call ourselves a Christian nation. All right, so based on this ratio here, um, if you take 1 million people and 48.9% of those 1 million people would then be potentially people that declare that they are Christians. Now, of course, we might argue that some of them would not be born again, but nevertheless, they have ascribed or they have aligned themselves with a Christian religion, so therefore they, are, they have more of a Christian worldview than they might have, say, an Islamic worldview or an Eastern religion worldview and so forth. All right? So assuming that the Christians do exactly as people in the world when it comes to voting, and I suspect that that would not be all that far off, we could say, based on this ratio, that 400 and 89,000 Christians have not voted in the 2014 general election. Nearly half a million Christians have not voted in the last election. And here's the deal. If God can move all the Christians to, number one, vote, and number two, vote biblically, 
we can swing this thing in any direction that we feel it needs it to go. In any direction. Imagine 400. And when somebody said, well, let's just assume that Christians would vote a bit more, or more Christians would vote out of the general population than what general population would. Even conservatively speaking, there are still 250, 300,000 people that have said they're Christians but have not gone out to vote. So with those votes, we can do anything we like. We could absolutely be the kingmakers in this nation. All right? Absolutely be the kingmakers uh, in this nation. So the deal now is, um, and in fact, I was at a minister's meeting uh, over a week ago, and we had Pastor Rassig Rainshord uh, from Wellington come and address us as a group of ministers. He's got some excellent resources out, some of which we've printed out and put on the information table. Um, and this man, in my estimation, is probably the foremost Christian uh, person in New Zealand that understands politics and that has been involved on the political scene for multiple decades. Because Pastor Vanessa and I were in the church there with Pastor Rasik uh, way back uh, for about a year, so we know uh, the man well, uh, before we moved on to Bible college. And, uh, I mean, he's now a mature man, uh, but he's very strong and very active in this whole area. Some, of course, of you know him. He's also the convener of prayer at Parliament, um, and he's actually initiated that and has been rallying around all of that and rallying the Christians to pray for government, to pray for Parliament, uh, and so forth. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, much of the materials that he's made available uh, needs to be read and needs to be studied because here is what he says amongst the Christians. He reckons that poor theology around the concept of, of politics is one of the main reasons why Christians don't go and vote. Poor theology. People just don't understand and tragically, we get ministers across the nation who haven't got enough gumption within themselves to get up and to declare some of the things that need to be declared for fear of upsetting somebody and for fear of tipping somebody over. And I tell you, people are easily tipped over when it comes to politics. But today, if I'm cutting across your, your view of, uh, of uh, you know, your political view, just be gracious and smile and just, you know, be mature. There is no need to jump up and to stomp out and to let everybody know that you spat the dumb. It's like, let's be mature about these things. All right, is everybody good this morning? Yeah. Praise God. Just smile at the person. Say, you're at the right place today. Just tell him you're at the right place today. Let me swing to the second point here. Uh, and that's this, that righteousness exalts a nation. And this is to do with, with theology when it comes to politics, when it comes to political leaders. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34, uh, and this is in, God, in God's Word translation, which is a reasonably modern translation. It says, righteousness lifts up a nation, but sin is a disgrace in any society. All right, so righteousness lifts up or righteousness exalts a nation. All right. So what that means is that, you know, politicians would have us believe that it is the economy that lifts up a nation. 
Or they would have us believe that uh, good education lifts up a nation, or clean rivers lifts up a nation. And you know what? All of these things are important, and I'm not trying to minimize those, but God says righteousness is more important than all of these other issues. For you and I, as the people of God, righteousness ought to be the first and foremost thing that we should be looking at in the political parties and in the political candidates. And friends, let me tell you that many people do not go as far, and I'm just getting ahead of myself already, would not go as far as uh, looking at the party websites and reading some of their manifestos as to what they say in regards to what we will call moral issues. Some of you will be shocked beyond belief what you're reading. But yet that, that standard practice within political parties and, uh, and, 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 uh, and, and so forth. So all of these things are important, but God says righteousness is what ultimately exalts a nation. Let me read Proverbs 29 verse 2. It says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. All right. Um, just recently, we talked about uh, Esther as a woman of faith, and we discovered that Esther was in a country uh, there in Babylon where there were two politicians. One of them was Haman, and the other one was Mordecai. You remember, Haman and Mordecai. And Haman was an unrighteous man. He was a wicked ruler, uh, and he produced unrighteous legislation. Mordecai was a righteous man. And so under Mordecai, the kingdom not just the natural kingdom, but the kingdom of God flourished. But under Mordecai, not only did the kingdom of God go backwards, but also the nation. I got it the wrong way around. I'm sorry. Uh, that under Mordecai, the kingdom flourished. And under Haman, the kingdom went down. And so the same is true today. When we choose unrighteous leaders, it's going to work against us. Um, and it's going to work against the kingdom of God. When we choose righteous leaders... Then the Bible says, the people rejoice when a wicked man rules, the people groan. So what does it mean uh, when it says the righteous, when the righteous rule? Um, the word righteous means to be just in character and conduct, to be morally upright. And I want to focus on the word morally upright because it is in the moral aspects where we discern righteousness or unrighteousness. If we were to say purely look at figures or numbers, maths, you know, back or forth, there's no righteousness or unrighteousness attached to it. But when we look at these leaders' lifestyle to see where they sit and what they do and what they don't do, um, that will absolutely determine uh, in regards to, you know, our understanding of whether they are righteous or unrighteous. The root word here, when it comes to, you know, the root word of righteousness, it has the connotation uh, of conformity to a high ethical and moral standard. A high ethical and a high moral standard. You know, one thing that uh, the general population doesn't like is when politicians lie, and rightly so. But there are many people who don't care what their personal lives looks like, what their sexual orientation is, 
how they live their lives. Are they married or unmarried? Do they live with people or not live with people? Uh, how do they conduct themselves uh, in their personal lives? To the extent that uh, uh, we had one of the former mayors of, uh, of Auckland, which is a major political figure in our country, this is local government, of course, had a major affair that went on uh, for some time, and he absolutely insisted, that, look, I'm doing a good job, leave my private life alone, uh, and let me just do my job. But as far as the Bible is concerned, you immediately disqualify because your moral standard is not of the high standard as it is supposed to be. The, uh, still under the word righteousness here, the original significance of the root word, and uh, it's printed here, I can't pronounce it uh, because I don't speak Hebrew, but it means to be straight. All right. It means to be straight. Now, that means that there is no crookedness allowed. There's also no queerness allowed. Because God says he sets the plumb line as far as righteousness is concerned. And everything that is out is out. Um, and everything that's straight as far as God is concerned is straight. What does it mean uh, when it speaks about the wicked? Uh, when the, pe the wicked man rules, the people groan. Well, the wicked means the ungodly. Um, those not only without God, but those who are hostile to God. All right? Who will be hostile to Christianity? Its teachings, its values, and even its people. <laughs> I've just received a, uh, a, um, an email from a barrister that had come from the UK to Australia to encourage the Christians over there to rise up because they're fighting the same-sex marriage battle over there right now. It's not law now, but uh, there's legislation being discussed right now uh, or a bill being discussed b um, before it is made legislation. And here's what the lady said. She says, look, in the UK, we've lost the battle. We've tried to be nice about it. We tried to be kind. We tried to be gentle. We weren't vocal enough. We've lost the battle. So she's saying, Australian Christians, you need to rise up. You need to speak up. Otherwise, you will lose the battle too. Now, being a barrister, she says, I'm getting people continually coming to me and they're now getting discriminated against because of their faith and because of their strong beliefs in regards to some of the issues that are going on. Um, the businesses are now being uh, taken to court because they do not agree with some of the liberal legislation that has been passed uh, and so forth. And it's just an outright disaster. But here's the point. Here's the strong point. It's Christians are just nice and quiet about it. We've got pastors across this nation. Let's not rock the boat. But I say, let's rock it. Let's rock the boat. All right? Let's speak up. I mean, if the church is quiet, I went to a political meeting uh, of an uh, you know, upcoming election um, at least 10, 15, possibly 20 years ago. And there were issues going on back then. And then some of the conservative right-wing guys that were there, and I'll talk about some of that in a moment, they said, where is the church? Why doesn't the church speak up? And because the media, more often than not, goes to whom they perceive to be the church and they don't many times get it right. They talk to the wrong people. You know, if you talk to, say, one of the church leaders, that, uh, a church that is uh, physically located on the terrace, um, 
and, and you know, it's like, you know, you do your research and your study, you talk to them, you're going to get one liberal view uh, that is just so far removed from righteousness, but it's still called a church. So the media don't get it right. And then because the real Christians are all nice and quiet and just sort of beavering on, as it were, keeping things within the four walls of the church and not going out there, not being a voice, and most certainly not be a united voice. Here's the deal. As much as what it is desirable for all the Christians who, and all those who say they're Christians going out to vote, but if they're still as scattered as what everybody else is, we're just going to get more of the same. There's no point. Let me say this. There is no point if more Christians vote for the same because the same votes will just get multiplied and we're going to get more of the same. God says there are worthy causes in probably most of these uh, political parties and the leaders that are standing there. But God says, leave that to me. God can move on unsaved, on ungodly people to, to get things done and to get things into position. But God says, I need the Christians on the same page. <laughs> And the fact that we've laid out the political uh, spectrum, and I'm staying on center right now, and if you kind of imagine like the two wings over here, we've got the right wing, over here we've got the left wing, uh, and I suppose we've got these signs up, uh, left wing, and then we've got the far left, and over there we've got the right uh, wing, and we've got the far right, and then it goes further out, it just goes way out, and we haven't got enough space here, it goes way out, there are some weird people out there. <laughs> on this side and on that side. And, uh, you know, the political spectrum fails us to a certain extent because it's a straight line. And experts have told us that actually, in fact, there are other ways to describe it. Sometimes they use a square and they color in certain things. Uh, so it's not like an opposed deal over here and over there. Um, and other people have said that actually, the political spectrum curves around and meets at the opposing ends. And so, what does that mean? Well, if I can just talk about the extremities. In fact, let me just run along here. Over here, we've got actor, they're pretty far right. David Seymour is his name. We've got the conservatives, who are fairly conservative. Uh, we've got New Zealand first, and uh, you know, we might argue, we might sort of shunt him back and forth, but uh, he, is, he is clearly a right-wing party and a right-wing man, because national, we know. Um, and, of course, what's also confusing, we tried to give them all the colors that their party have as their party colors. And, you know, that works in New Zealand. But when you, for example, watch the American scene, uh, over there, blue is actually the Democrats, who are the left-wing crowd. And red is the Republican, who are the right-wing crowd. So some of that gets a bit confusing. Um, and we got the different... Uh, Values, if you like, like for example, in Australia, you got the Liberal Party, and uh, liberal generally would mean left wing, but in Australia, the Liberal Party actually the right wing party. So, you know, some of that gets a little bit confusing, but let's just focus on our own scene here. Um, so, we got National over here, we got United Future, pretty centrist uh, in their policy and in the view. Uh, of course, there's likely to changes coming up because the man, uh, Peter Dunn, has resigned and there is a new lead in place and it's anyone's guess which way this swings. I've got a, a strong feeling that uh, it will 
swing over here. Then we got the Maori Party, we got the Labour Party, we got the Opportunities Party, we got the Mana Party, and we got the Greens out here, far, far left, the Greens. Um, in terms of the extremities, um, out here, <laughs> out here, you get the, the communists. And then it goes further out, and then you get the anarchists and all of these people that, uh, as I say, I've said before, that out in the extremities is la-la land. You get the weird and the wonderful, and then more weird than wonderful out there. Over here, you get the far right, the far right, you get the fascists. Uh, and out here, you got the you know, groupings like the neo-Nazis, uh, <laughs> skinheads, and, out, and the anarchists out that way as well. And as I say, those two ends actually meet around the back. And at the extremities, there's hardly any difference uh, between their policies. At that point, uh, it's just a disaster. And uh, I think for us as Christians, uh, uh, I don't think we have got any uh, space to go to out in the extremities. Uh, it would seem to me that if we were to fly a plane, we would want the plane to run sort of pretty straight, wouldn't we? Uh, but here's a thought, here's a thought. If the political spectrum were laid out like a plane, in fact, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and if I had a full-blown a full blown events team and I had people to call on, I would have said, make me a plane, um, a wooden plane, and we will hang it from the ceiling, and uh, we will have it entirely straight. And then we're going to take, say, little coins, for example. Each one of those coins stands for a single volt. And when you hang a plane from the center and get it leveled out with wings all the way as far as what our political spectrum is, you put a single coin on a plane out here, what that will mean is that it'll weight the plane towards uh, the right, and it means that the nation will become more right-wing uh, in its policies and in its uh, expression. And if you put the coins out there, then it'll go this way. And you know, friends, it's not just where the nation is at right now. Uh, it's where it's going to be in two, three years. If it leans this way, immediately, immediately there's hardly a change. But about a mile or two down the track, a year or two down the track, nations can be way out. So there is some merits to talk about balance. Balance is very important. It should never be either or. It is the balance between the two. And then the government, whoever that government is going to be, whether that will be left or right, the government needs a strong opposition to keep the government in check. And that's what democracy is all about, that you've got a good balance and a good situation where the opposition is there to keep checks on, on government, to criticize the government. They all do it. That's part of their job. They are not supposed to say anything kind about the government. That's why when they talk, like, for example, to Bill English, um, Billing, there he is, there's Bill. They talk to him and he says something, then they immediately go over here and say, oh, Jacinta, what have, you, what have you got to say? She will say something uh, uh, unkind about him because it's her job. Uh, that's what they do, all right, to kind of criticize what the government doing. Not enough of this, not enough of that. So that's balance for you. That's why they call it the debating chamber. It's actually more called the quarreling chamber rather than the debating. There's all sorts of quarrels going on there. And, uh, you know, I guess that's the, uh, it's good if there is a robust discussion going on 
on around issues, but robustness alone is not enough. We need righteousness in this whole mix, and that's where you and I come in as Christians. That's what I said before. God says, leave all of these things to me, and let me focus you. And this is what I wanted to say. God says, let me focus you on one particular spot, because if we were to ask and say, okay, you all come up here, and please don't. I don't want to know. But if I say, come up and stand where you think, you know, you're going to put your support in the upcoming election, we will be shocked how spread out the Christians are. We will be shocked. There's still traditional voting going on. Uh, sometimes uh, in regards to their certain, certain uh, income brackets sit in certain spots. There's certain ethnicities sit in certain spots. They do traditional voting, and that's what we've always done. Um, and the fact, of course, that we are in a strong, this is Hot South electorate here, we're in a strong labor seat. You get that strongly because that's where we are, that's where we live. Um, and, of course, the electoral uh, um, boundaries, it's good for us to understand that. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, some of you live uh, in the Rimataka electorate, which is... Uh, Nainai Taita North, including Upper Hutt. Uh, and some of us live in, like, from uh, Kennedy Goodbridge, uh, Avalon South, all the way down to Petoni, uh, Western Hills, uh, uh, Eastbourne, Wainuimata, um, is, is, is the Hutt South. And because Trevor Mallet is the sitting MP. Um, Trevor Mallet uh, wants to become the Speaker of the House, so he will not stand for uh, in the electoral seat, is my understanding. Uh, he will just wants to be a list MP, and then he wants to go uh, to become the Speaker of the House, uh, uh, which is what's in the wings. Of course, you will get Eastbourne, um, which will be a, um, a higher-earning area. You'd expect them to be more on this side. And then you get Wainuimata. Uh, Wainuimata, I guess, more blue-collar type work. You'd, you'd expect more of that going on because that's how it's spread out. I'm speaking generally. Um, and so God says, let me shift you. Let me move you a little. Um, in terms of uh, the wicked, again, the last point there, uh, who are the wicked and what does wickedness look like? Well, it's guilty of violating God's standard. We're not talking about the standard uh, even of prudent economics. We're not talking about the standard of laws as far as in the natural is concerned. We're talking about God's standard. So these are the wicked people. Now, we don't use the word wicked hardly anymore today. We call him, you know, the unchurched. Uh, uh, we don't use those terms anymore. But as far as God's concerned, they're still the righteous people and they're still the wicked people. Um, and, and so you and I need to know what that looks like. Christians should first and foremost look for the moral qualifications of political candidates before they look for their professional qualifications. All right? It's, uh, it's not how able are they as leaders and as politicians. It's how morally qualified are they to be leaders in our nation. Lastly here in Proverbs um, 11 verse 11. This is in the Living Bible. It says, The good influence of godly citizens causes a city to prosper, but the moral decay of the wicked drives it downhill. Now, I know about, I understand policy to affect the economy for good or bad, but God says his policy is righteousness and a good economy will follow. Wickedness and a bad economy will follow. 
So that's how God looks at it, and that's how God would like for us to look at this thing. Now, point number three, political philosophy determines a party's policy. You know, many voters get swayed by the personality of political candidates or by their outrageous promises. And that's why, as I say, we call it lolly scramble. We get leaders going around kissing babies because that's what they like. That's what people like. Oh, he's lovely. Oh, he picked up a little girl and kissed her. How wonderful. <laughs> oh, what a lovely smile she has. People get swiped by that. All right? Or by the lolly scramble. We're going to put more money into your pocket. How many of you have been watching the political debates that have been screened on TV1 and TV3? A number of you have. Uh, and of course, uh, TV3, Patrick Gower, uh, the political editor, um, he's actually quite a sharp young man in my view. He really understands the stuff. Um, and, uh, and he says partway along the discussion, all right, he says, let's get to the money, he says. Who is going to put more money in your pocket? Because that's what people want to hear. It's, uh, it's making promises. Now, remember this. Uh, for us, promises, depending on what they are, are way down in the list of importance when it comes to judging who is deserving of our vote. Um, and uh, as I say, Christians ought not to run around after the lolly scramble and wherever the lolly drops, that's where they vote. Let's, let's not us work at that fleshly level. You know, we just had another uh, church on the field event, uh, and at the end of it all, it's always wonderful how people work hard and put on a great event for the whole church family, young and old, kids, and then at the end of it, they got, they got a job for me every year. It's my job to do the lolly scrambles. And they give me this big bag of uh, minty uh, lollies, whatever they are, a big bag, and I scatter them around, and, uh, you know, I throw something in this, and all the kids and some of the adults rush in that direction, and then I throw some over there, and they rush in that direction. And, of course, it's a lot of fun and quite right to do but when it comes to political lolly scramble, let's not us run around after the lollies. Let's follow after righteousness. So wise voters examine the political party's philosophy and ideology which determines their policy, particularly in the area of morality. Now, we got one resource down the back called Value Your Vote, uh, and that's been, that's an eight-page glossy brochure, very well done, produced by Family First, uh, which is fronted by Bob McCroskey, who is a good man and has done major research in regards to the uh, voting record of the politicians. Very important resource, and where they stand on upcoming issues. And you know, in the end, it's not how much they smile or not smile, it's what does their voting record look like because that will determine what they're going to bring uh, to the table and what they will do. It's not what they promise now. In fact, just a bit later on, uh, uh, you know, the leaders debate, uh, you know, they were asked different things. And, of course, most political parties got three things uh, that they want to push hard because most people can only remember three things. And they are the key issues. They are the key promises, election promises, and so forth. But they don't tell you other things that they got in the wings. Like, for example, uh, um, somebody was asked about abortion, and then it all came out. But, and, but, but she said, oh, but we're not campaigning on that. Yeah, but we're glad that we know about it. We, we, we're glad now we understand your position. 
because that's going to come up. In the next, in the next term, uh, whoever ends up in power, there will be either a left-alone policy as we have it now as far as abortion in New Zealand is concerned, or it will be changed, it will be more liberalised. And so let's us not scramble around after lollies. Um, and of course, in terms of descending order of importance, I got four words written down, all starting with the letter P. Polit political philosophy and ideology is very important. Very, very important. A lot of people don't understand that. Because based on the political philosophy of a political party, and then therefore its leader, we place them either on the left or on the right because their philosophy is either conservative or it is liberal. And of course these are the broad, the broad uh, kind of left and right situation. In the middle we got what we might call the moderates, the more centrist uh, in terms of their views, we get, you know, extreme liberals on this side, we got extreme con conservatives to a point, and then it gets all weird further out, and that's when some of these terminologies no longer fit. That's why we can't just put a, a blanket statement out, because some of that shifts around a little bit, and we need to then find out what is in the party manifesto. Uh, what is the personal view of the leader or the political candidate in my electorate that will determine in regards to who they are and where they will be uh, in one, two, three years' time. So number one, very important is political philosophy and ideology. What drives you people? Uh, what drives you a party? Um, and, uh, and of course, there is good aspects of what drives them in every party. But along with it, you also buy the bad. And the bad they don't tell you about, or they keep that hidden in the background. Then, of course, political philosophy swings into point number two, into policy. Policy of every political party is based on their political philosophy. Because that's what drives it. Uh, and then you get further down to personality. Uh, <laughs> you know, and they, they do. Personality. People say, oh, they talk about the Jacinta effect. Uh, it's personality. I should let you know that Jacinta's got no effect on me whatsoever. <laughs> None. I'm not, you know, I'm, hope, I'm hoping that I'm a little more mature than be swayed by a smile and by nice words, either way. So we're way above that uh, as Christians. And then, of course, you get the promises. Uh, and the promises of more money should have absolutely, absolutely no effect on us whatsoever. None whatsoever. So let's then examine... Um, in fact, let me just, the next sentence there, and it's in your outline. Typically, election campaigns are focused mostly around personalities and promises, mostly. And some policies that sound good. Some policies that sound good. It sounds good to say, the Greens are saying, we're going to lift 50,000 or 100,000 children out of poverty. It sounds really good. But just because that's a promise doesn't mean it's going to happen or that they have the money to make it happen. There's a, a promised lolly scramble that may never occur. And consistently, uh, we're getting politicians saying things, particularly then in the opposition. And right now, this is the opposition. All right. Uh, 
some here. This is the ruling party at the moment, a coalition agreement uh, with ACT and with uh, United Future. Um, they got a better handle typically on what's affordable, but even there, <laughs> some of the things that were promised in the past, there's an event six months down the track, be it an earthquake or be it something else, and suddenly the, the, the lolly scramble is called off, we don't have the money. Uh, and by the way, whatever money is spent on this side, it's got to come from somewhere. So whatever money you give to somebody, somebody's got to earn that money. So there's no such thing as a free lunch. And government coffers are not unlimited. And typically they only run from month to month, year to year, taxation, and then spending the money and so forth. And of course they're supposed to do that. They're supposed to spend the money, but it's how they spend the money it'll either be righteously spent or unrighteously spent. So as far as the political spectrum is concerned, again, I point out that I'm standing here at the center where the moderates live, pretty moderate people, centrists. They can work with these guys. They can work with that, those guys. So the far ends of the political spectrum abhor them because they're not those sorts of people. That's not their policy. Because uh, uh, Peter Dunn <laughs> campaigned on the common sense policy uh, and, uh, and so forth. And that's just what he's done. And so I think political commentators agree that uh, United Future um, is pretty centrist uh, in its... Uh, policy and in its views, the moderates. Then further out, you get the liberals um, on, on, on that side, and further out, you get you know, the right wing and the far right, you get then the conservatives. Uh, and in a general sense, and this is a general statement, on the right, you get the capitalists, and on the left, you get the socialists. Now, we don't like using the word socialism because it sounds too much like communism. But let me tell you, New Zealand is a strongly socialist country. Despite the fact that we had a so-called right-wing government, uh, we got a strong socialist uh, fabric running through society. Um, and people might say, well, it, it, that's good. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I'm just saying that that's what it is. Um, New Zealand, to a certain extent, has been patterned after some of the Scandinavian countries that are some of them strongly socialist countries. Uh, and as I said before, where under left-wing governments, you get the government employee, the whole, the whole staff of everything expanding. And under a right-wing government, you get it shrinking cut down. What did they call them in two elections ago? They called them the slash gangs or something, the right-wing guys. They go through government departments and they just slash out. Why is that? It's part of their political philosophy, which drives their policy, which then determines what they're going to do on the ground. Whereas over here, you get uh, nations like Sweden, where at one time, one in four employees was employed by the government in Sweden. One in four people was employed by the government. And then you get uh, that uh, a tax bracket uh, where a lot of people in Sweden were paying upward to 60% of taxes. Because if money's spent over here, then it's got to come from somewhere. Um, and, and, and this is what people don't understand. We want more for us, and we want this, and we demand that. Um, 
How do we know that New Zealand is quite a strongly socialist uh, country? It's because we got three and four generation of wel welfare dependent families scattered throughout various parts of the country. Um, when I grew up in Europe, and specifically, um, I was born and raised in Austria, the unemployment benefit was available for six months. And after that, you were on your own. And of course, we might argue, this is shocking, this is horrific. And of course, most of us would say that because we're used to just keeping this thing going over and over, that whole welfare dependency um, and, and so forth, uh, as I said. But after six months, it's amazing how creative people get. It's amazing how thrifty they become. It's amazing how motivated people become. Now, that's, that's what goes on over there. Of course, in the meantime, everything has changed. I've been gone there for 35 years. I just know that Austria, if you look at all the OECD countries around the world, that Austria has been in the top 10 most prosperous nation in the whole world. And this is not me bragging about Austria or the Austrian people or Austrian... I'm, I'm simply giving you information. Friends, what you cannot do in terms of spending money, because these people are more inclined to spend more money uh, in certain areas than what these people are, because it's part of their philosophy. You cannot tax a nation into prosperity. You can't do it. You've got to raise productivity. Now, of course, we've already moved on from righteousness. Righteousness is the most important aspect uh, that you and I need to be looking for. But we ought to be educated and have a little bit of common sense and understand how this thing connects up and get away from the lolly scrambles, from the smiles, from the promises, and deal with the real issues that are on hand. What else have I not talked about? Uh, <laughs> you get capitalists, um, capitalism, um, and I guess uh, most democracies have a certain level of... Uh, of capitalism uh, going on. That's what makes them democracy. And of course, there's people typically, typically, national is a right-wing party, typically looked after and stood for and was supported by farmers, people in business, and so forth. Uh, sometimes some of the more well-to-do people. And then labor obviously stood for and uh, looks after and supports the more working class people. That's just what you had. Some of those lines got to be blurred. Because if I were to tell you um, how much money the national-led government spends on social welfare, which actually sits on this side. Social welfare sits on this side. How much money they spend every day on social welfare you'd be shocked. Some of you would say we need to unclip them and we need to whip them way over here uh, because of what they do now. So it seems that some of their political philosophy has been changed and they're more inclined to have a socialistic aspect to their policy and they know for their political survival New Zealand demands that now because New Zealand has become a strongly socialist country. So any party out there that wants to get away from 
It's like were to turn off the tap of social welfare overnight will not do too well in New Zealand because the whole nation is leaning this way. All right. Um, incredible, incredible amounts of money. But remember, whatever is spent has to be found somewhere. Um, and uh, let me just spread these guys out a little bit further. You then get, and I'm bouncing around a bit now. It's now bounce around time. Is that right? You then get, um, say, somebody like the Opportunities Party. Morgan Gareth, is that his name? Gareth Morgan. Gareth Morgan is actually a capitalist. He's an amazingly wealthy man. So he practices capitalism. He preaches socialism. And I don't know about you, but I, I have some issues when some of that goes on. Like on the world stage, there is a, an amazingly wealthy man by the name of George Soros. Multiply billionaire. In terms of capitalist, I mean, he's the capitalist times capitalist. I mean, he's just a very wealthy man. But he spends most of his wealth to promote socialistic and very, in fact, let me talk about very liberal uh, policy around the world, funding groups, not so much political parties, but groups that are out there protesting paid protesters. I know about you, but I have a problem with paid protesters. I have a problem when the media run after a few big mouths that are out there with their placards uh, and shouting slogans and everything, if they feel strongly about it. But, you know, one thing I've discovered uh, is that, uh, in fact, I had a, a talk with a policeman some years ago, um, many years ago now, uh, because I lived in a place where they had 24-hour police protection. That was my place of work, 24-hour police protection. And so I'm talking like to policemen all day, every day, because they were just there to protect what was going on. And, uh, and uh, one main point it out is it's interesting. He says, wherever we are called to, as far as protests are concerned, he says, uh, uh, if it's slightly liable to get out of hand or if we're just called to be there in order to help to keep the peace, it's the same faces that turn up a protest after protest after protest. Same faces. A lot of them are professional agitators who are paid or supported or encouraged by some big rig up here and say, why don't you drive this for us and why don't you drive that and why don't you say this and why don't you say that and by the way, we will pay for the placards uh, uh, for the posters that you guys need and so forth. Now, that's not true in every instance and I know it's a general statement but a lot of that goes on. Now, let me talk about those two words, uh, conservative and liberal and let me tell you what they mean. And just straight from a dictionary, uh, if we were to go to a dictionary and say, okay, what, the, what do these words mean? Because in a general sense, they apply. Um, in a general sense. Uh, the word conservative means favoring traditional views and values. Favoring traditional views and values. Meaning traditional or restraint in style. 
Uh, it also means to be moderate to a, to a certain extent. That word moderate, which is center uh, on, on, on the stage, fits into that terminology as well. Um, then the word liberal means not limited to or or by, not limited to or by established traditional orthodox or authoritarian attitudes or views. Not limited. So in other words, the liberals generally don't have the same boundaries around themselves where their philosophy is concerned is what the conservatives do. That's why they are on opposing ends. It's just the nature of it. <laughs> As I said before, when you get from right, right wing, to far right, that term doesn't fit anymore. Because you get, you had a political party in New Zealand called the Libertarians. How many of you remember the Libertarians? Boy, they're way out here. They're like way out. Of course, they're gone now. But they were not conservative uh, in their views at all. They were as liberal as they come. When, if we use the word liberal in a negative a sense. Of course, there's positive aspects to the term liberal, and we just need to understand what they are. So what does it mean, the term liberal? It means uh, favoring proposals of reform, open to new ideas for progress, and tolerant of the ideas and behavior of others. So we got so-called more tolerance on this side here, because that's what the term implies. Uh, New ideas, you know, it's a good thing, but you know what, what we have had going on in some of the legislation that has been passed in the last 15, 20 years, even under a national government, where things like same-sex marriage, there were certain boundaries around some of these things that are traditional boundaries. Uh, they say, no, we're not bound by those boundaries. We're going to rewrite the rules around all of that. So that's there for a liberal piece of legislation. All right, because the conservatives would say, let's leave it as it is. That's why I'm saying, <laughs> even a lot of these guys are leaning strongly that way now because that's what the nation demands. That's what the people demand. And uh, it's just how it is. So the word liberal also means uh, characteristic of a political party founded on principles of social and political liberalism. Uh, you know, in Christianity, we have a term that Bible-believing Christians are really concerned about. It's called liberal theology. Um, and what does that mean? And of course, some of these terms interrelate, but in some instances, we can't just put them on the same level. But liberal theology means this. We do not believe in the boundaries of the written word of God. Liberal theology says, look, we're now in the 21st century. We need to just change things a little bit. But God says, no, my word cannot be changed. It cannot be broken. It cannot be annulled. Then liberal theology no longer believes in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's why it's liberal, no longer bound by those constraints. And it also does not believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because it's now liberal theology. And we now, got, uh, we now got churches that are preaching a liberal theology where people are no longer saved, they're no longer converted, they're no longer filled with the Holy Spirit, they're no longer living by the Word of God, they're living as liberal as they come. I mean, typically, if I were, to, if I were asked to place the Christian population on the spectrum, here's my opinion. This is just opinion. This is not thus says the Lord. Bible-believing 
Protestant, Pentecostal type people would be more leaning on this side because they would argue that the Bible is a conservative book. And they will preach personal responsibility. Then you will get more the traditional churches, what we call the historic churches, that are strong in regards to social action, and some of that's wonderful and commendable, uh, will be leaning more this way because in their liberal attitudes and views, one thing that I failed to read to you, that the word liberal also, also means tending to give freely. Tending to give freely. That's why the liberals would hand out the dole week after week, month after month, year after year, and ask no questions because that is part of their political philosophy. Whereas these guys over here would say, we need to ask some questions as to why we need to hand out money year after year. It's, it's when can we break that cycle? So that's just, you know, in terms of how this whole thing is spaced out. Um, in terms of some of my flavor, as far as theology is concerned, and what we sometimes, a term that we use, we don't use it often, but we use the term word of faith, if you want to walk by faith, you need to take personal responsibility. If you expect everybody to carry you and supply you with whatever you need, you can't walk by faith in the way that the Bible describes it. Now, I know that that's a strong statement. I'm just pointing out how I see it that the more responsibility we take for our own personal lives, for our needs, for our actions, the more we are likely to shift in this direction. Now, we got a heart for people that live over here, and we want to help them. And in just a moment, in fact, uh, how are we doing for time? We're still doing okay. Um, let me read you the last two points here under the word liberal, it's tending to give freely. And it also says not, and it's not in your outline, but I've just got that here on a piece of paper. It's not strict or literal, it's loose or approximate. Uh, that's kind of part of the meaning of the word liberal. Um, and then finally, it's, uh, and this is supposed to be an obsolete meaning according to the dictionary, and this is straight out of the uh, um, American Heritage Dictionary, just one dictionary that I looked at. The word liberal also means morally unrestrained and licentious. Now, the last thing that I would suggest is that everybody that's over here is morally unrestrained. <coughs> uh, I would not suggest that in any way. In fact, uh, I talked to some politicians, that uh, Christian politicians, um, that went to parliament, you know, some of them for one term, some for two. Um, there is hardly anybody that's not guilty in terms of when we talk about righteousness and unrighteousness. But with some parties, it's overt, and for some of them, it's covert. If we were to go back and look at some of the moral issues where legislation has been passed, most of those 
were initiated from center leftward, not from center right. Why is that? Because the political philosophies say, let's have reform. We don't like this anymore. We need to decriminalize this. We need to change the marriage act there. We need to do this. Whereas these guys over here, and of course, sadly, some of these guys just completely got on board and, and, uh, and um, kind of uh, got on board with it. But some of these guys would say, well, no, let's keep with the traditional view of the family and of marriage and so forth. That's how this thing is laid out. It's an interesting thing, too, that if we were to talk about, in fact, uh, one of my friends is uh, strongly supportive of Israel, you know, anti-Semitism. Do you know that anti-Semitism lives somewhere on the political spectrum? It lives somewhere. And let me suggest to you where it might live. And I could be slightly wrong, uh, but I don't think I would, I would be that far out. Anti-Semitism definitely lives at the far ends. Because over here, you've got the fascists, <laughs> you've got the, the neo-Nazis, and we know what the Nazis have done to the Jews. They live out here. And then from here on forward, um, you're likely the anti-Semitism would more live, in terms of closer to the center and the middle, would more live on this side. And this is the reason why, because traditionally, Western nations have known and understood, and if they had their theology right, they know that Christianity was born out of the seabed of Judaism. And Western nations, by and large, are Christian nations or were Christian nations. So therefore, uh, anti, or so, say support of Israel, uh, the modern state of Israel, and of Zionism and so forth, would live more here than what it lives there. Because the liberals would say, we are not constrained by some of those boundaries. Now, of course, these guys done a dirty on us with that uh, resolution at the United Nations, resolution 2468, is that what it was? Uh, to kind of sponsor a bill in the United Nations to come against Israel and to team up with, uh, there's New Zealand pushing this uh, bill, uh, teaming up with, um, was it Malaysia, uh, Muslim nation, teaming up with um, Venezuela, Venezuela a communist nation in Senegal. It's like, it's how, Murray McCulley, what's got into you? Murray, we would have expected some of that from over here. We would have not been surprised because anti-Semitism lives more in this world here. It doesn't live here. <laughs> and I would strongly suggest that the position of the political parties and their leaders where Israel is concerned should influence in regards to where we're going to put our vote. Because the general rule of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, when God calls Abraham out, and of course Abraham is the father of the Jewish people, um, and of course therefore the father of the Jewish nation, uh, both of the uh, uh, ancient nation as well as of the modern state. They still talk about Abraham now. God says to him, Abraham, come out and follow me. He says, I will bless you and I will multiply you. I will increase you. He says, whoever blesses you will be blessed and whoever curses you will be cursed. Just a thought. So therefore, uh, that ought to be a consideration in regards to where they stand uh, as far as these uh, issues are concerned.
So very quickly now, um, on the political spectrum, and I'm hoping that I've sort of covered the uh, center, right wing, far right, left wing, far left, the socialists, and the capitalists, the conservatives, and the liberals. Uh, I'm not in any way suggesting that uh, all liberals are bad. Not in any way suggesting that all conservatives are good. Not saying that. But I'm saying that, you know, there are times when the Christians need to be strongly liberal and overthrow existing structures, such as a man by the name of William Wilberforce who abolished slavery under his, in his generation. And slavery was an established deal going on uh, at that particular time. And so therefore, he would have had a strongly liberal view in terms of uh, let's do away with those traditional constraints and those boundaries. Let's set these people free. So as I say, I'm not saying left and right and good and bad and bad and evil and, and so forth. But what I'm, I'm just telling you the tendencies uh, that we see. So let's quickly now examine the position of some of the par parties and their leaders on the important moral issues. We might only have time for two, uh, two issues. Um, and uh, one of those will be abortion. Uh, we don't hear much about abortion, but in 2016, 12,823 babies were aborted. Uh, 23, yeah, 12,823 babies were aborted in New Zealand in 2016. All of that information is online on the statistics website. You can find all of that. Back in 2000, in the year 2000, around about that area, they killed 18,000 babies in this nation. We got an American organization called Planned Parenthood. Um, and how is that for euphemism? Using a nice word. They have, under their watch and under their leadership and guidance, and actually think they've killed one million babies around the world in 2016. One million babies. In four and a half years, with all the aborted babies, if that were to carry on, you could populate the nation of New Zealand. Just give, give, give some thought to that. This is an important issue where the general population might not care a great deal in regards to what goes on. Let the Christians be concerned. God is concerned for every baby that gets conceived in every part of the world. And one of the more outrageous, and we cannot compare left and right with New Zealand and America, but I've tried to follow American politics to a certain extent. In America, my view is, and I'm sure that uh, Michael could explain it much better, but my view is that uh, in America, you got the right, and then you don't have much in the middle. Don't have much in the middle, and you got the left, and you get some pretty polarized sort of scenarios going on. Whereas in New Zealand, it's more more connected together from left to right. I mean, that's just my opinion, and I could be quite wrong about that. But regardless of where you sit, killing babies is wrong. Right. Killing babies is just wrong. One of the more outrageous statements that I've heard from a lady that is the CEO of Planned Parenthood who lives way out, way out. She says, let's create a society completely free of violence. How is that for a pretty statement? 
and then we're killing one babies. It's been said that the mother's womb is the unsafest place on the face of the earth. We're talking about standing up for the weak, the poor, and the vulnerable. Why are we doing that? Where are the Christians? It's uh, the abortionists. They have invaded the United Nations. There is such a strong left-wing element, far left, in the United Nations. It's not even funny anymore, but a lot of people don't know about that. It's shocking. We get United Nations breathing down governments that uh, even governments here cave in under the, you know, that anti-smacking thing that's still supposed to go on. That's driven from the United Nations, breathing down on the necks of our leaders, whoever they are. And then you got this, you got manipulation and conniving going on where the International Monetary Fund is involved. They will say, if you don't do as we are telling you, we're going to downgrade you, and then your interest rates are going to go up. And so this is how nations get coerced into, you know, buckling into. It's like, why? You know, as far as somebody's moral issues concerned, we know what to expect from the left. But why does even the right cave in? It's because of some of that. So we need to be praying not only for our nation, we need to be praying even at a, at a notch above that where United Nations is concerned. I'm getting a bit sidetracked now. Abortion, very quickly now. There has been some questions asked in regards to decriminalization of abortion. Things are not going to stay as they are. There, there's a general trend downward now as far as abortion is concerned because we now have more technology. People can now see babies while they're in the womb. They get a scan. and People are saying, well, this is actually a baby what's in there. Whereas uh, some of them would say, oh, it's just fetal matter. That's all that is. Until baby's born and then, you know, baby becomes a citizen. But for us as Christians, we have no choice but to be pro-life from conception through to natural death. That's why abortion and euthanasia are two no-go areas for us as Christians. You can't go there and justify it. Now, that's not to say, that's not to say that some dear lady had, that's had some unfortunate situation where, at a, you know, in a wrong moment, at a vulnerable moment, might have had, a, a, you know, an abortion or something, or before they got safe, got an abortion. Look, I'm not here to cast stones, but in terms of legislation and in terms of promoting that kind of stuff, we, we just can't be there. We can't be there. So the leaders were asked in, in saying, will you decriminalize abortion? Of course, some of that information is strongly on some of these flyers that we got down the back there. Of course, Bill English uh, from National opposes that. Why would that be? Because Bill English is a conservative Catholic. And the Catholics are strong on abortion. Uh, against it. Strong against abortion. Of course, Jacinta, with her lovely smile, she says she supports it. She wants to take the present act, she wants to take the whole issue of abortion out of the Crimes Act, whatever that means. In fact, if we had time, I would show you a quick YouTube clip where they're saying the current law is not working, not working, not working. We've got one of the best laws uh, in New Zealand where abortion is concerned compared to, you know, OECD CD, CD nations uh, and everything. And whilst we're not even thrilled about the 11, 12,000 babies, it is a law that actually in a, in a quote-unquote, modern liberal society keeps the lid on things. Jacinta, with her lovely smile, 
wants to lift the lid. And here's what gets me. People want to support the, lab, the working party or the working people in New Zealand, and the way to do that in terms of them getting more money, you've got to swing in that direction, or so they say. But you cannot support the working party in New Zealand by casting a vote here and not supporting abortion at the same time. You can't single that out. Not in the party vote. You might say that in my electorate, wherever you are, in my electorate, my Labour candidate is a Christian's got good, strong, conservative values and stands for this, for that, and say that's possible. Uh, that, that, that effect that you know, it has might not be there to that same extent. But you know, the tragedy is they talk about conscience votes in the political leaders. They say, oh, this one is a conscience vote. They would say the same thing, but that on this instance, the MPs don't have to vote according to party lines. They can vote according to their conscience. But you know what? They got a creature called the party whip in Parliament. And that party whip goes around, and for some of the political parties, they whip everybody into submission. And they let them know, if you want a future in this party and in government, you better do as you're supposed to do, otherwise you're not going to have a future here. So it became very difficult for even Christian members of parliament. And we know there was an era uh, under Labour leadership where people were absolutely beaten into submission. And that's possibly the same happened on other issues over there as well. So I'm just saying that it's not all over here. It, it happens over there as well. So Winston Peters opposes decriminalization of Abortion. So that's why I say, Winston, you can show your face. We are thrilled about your stance and your position on that one. Now, James Shaw from the Green Party, he wants to open the lid right up. And that's why, one of the reasons why he sits way out here. No constraints. That technically, it would be okay to have late-term abortions. That if a mother were to be, say, say eight months pregnant or something, would still be able to abort, technically, uh, because depending on the final outcome of the bill that these guys are proposing to change, you're going to have a situation on your hand where it's just, it's just a disaster. Then uh, David Seymour from ACT supports the same party. That's why he's not on the right. That's why he's on the far right, a, a pretty extreme sort of a character there. Uh, uh, David would not get my vote. Um, Though, in terms of the ACT Party, that some of the previous policies that they had, I might have had sympathies for some of that. But, you know, I've also got sympathies for some of the envir environmental issues that these guys might stand for. So it's just a bit difficult for us. Somewhere we've got to make a compromise. And I hate the word, but when it comes to politics, you've got to, comprom you've got to compromise on your hand. It's where I like this, I like that, I like the other. You see, one of the things in the Green Party, how many of you remember a dear lady by the name of Sue Ketchley, who was a member of the uh, Green Party uh, two, two terms ago? I thought she had a whole lot of good things to say on what she said. Now, I didn't hear everything she says, but she was uh, fighting hard to make the labeling of food mandatory, that we actually know what's in the food. Labeling on the packet, I think that's a good thing. Um, I don't think it's ever gone anywhere, really. Um, 
because some of these guys over there might say that it becomes too difficult and so forth. So you get this back and forth, back and forth. Uh, so we got sympathies for a lot of these parties here, for m issues for most of what they stand for, but ultimately we can only place our vote in one direction. Then David Seymour, um, uh, Merrimer Fox from the Maori Party supports, there she is, Merrimer Fox, supports the liberalization of uh, abortion. Then here the question, this is a big one. Unborn child has, has the right to live. No, let me start again. Unborn child has a right to life. That was one question that was put to these leaders. And Bill English supports that. Why? Well, as a Catholic man, he can do no other. Because that's part of his ethos. But sadly, Jacinta Ardern did not respond. Did not respond, did not want to be incriminated with the answer, so we do not know specifically. But based on the answer, as far as abortion is concerned, she strongly talks about women's rights. Now, here's a great tragedy, a great tragedy. They talk about human rights, women's rights. Friends, human rights needs to be balanced with human responsibility. Otherwise, human rights don't, mill, don't mean nothing. And women's rights don't mean anything unless we balance it out with women's responsibilities. If you are big enough as a, as a, as a female, in my view, to go and get yourself pregnant, then be responsible with that. And don't just say, I now demand an abortion, and you all have to pay for it. It's a tragedy. Let me read to you in the leaders' debate that some of you have watched, uh, just to be very, very clear about that. Because a vote for Labour in the upcoming election is inevitably a vote to liberalise abortion laws. Inevitably. They will change it. And they will lift the lid. It'll go up. It'll not go down. Jacinta Ardern wants to change the abortion law. Bill English is not so keen. This is on Stuff website, uh, a report that came out after the second leaders' debate. Um, Labour leader says abortion should be not in the Crimes Act and she will change the law. So we know she will change the law. They're not just saying if it comes up, they say we will change the law. Uh, the law has not been changed since 1977, although there has been a call for it to be liberalized. You heard the word liberalized? We got the word liberal over here. They, they, these kind of things tie together. Whereas the conservatives, where Bill sits and where New Zealand first sits, say, let's leave it as it is. It's not perfect, but uh, at least, you know, we got, uh, we got sort of, uh, you know, some, some lid on this thing. During the News Hub debate on Monday night, Arden said that she would change the law if she became prime minister. So it's good for us to know. At least, at least we can work with what we know. It shouldn't be in the Crimes Act. People need to be able to make their own decision. People need to be able to make their own decision, just to repeat. I want women to access, I want, I'll start again. I want women who want access to be able to have it as a right. Um, Bill English, Prime Minister, a conservative Catholic, says he supported the law 
as it was and would be opposed to liberalization. Here's the word again, liberalization. It's overthrowing existing structures to liberalize it. He'd say, no, let's leave it as it is. He described the current setup where a woman has to get a certification from two separate medical professionals saying she needed an abortion, was broadly acceptable, and was working. So that's kind of their statement. Uh, uh, good for us to know these things. So, uh, again, uh, Jacinta Ardern did not respond on the second question, does a baby have a right, to, a right to life in the mother's womb? No comment to make. What's our position? Absolutely a right to live. From the moment a person is conceived, that is a person, God has given a spirit into that body, and this is a person, though the person is not yet born, but there's a person in there. Uh, Winston Peters supports the idea of the unborn uh, child have a right to life. That's why we got him over here, because it's a conservative view uh, based around existing structures. James Shaw from the Greens, uh, expectedly, no surprise, uh, would oppose the idea of uh, children having, you know, in, in legislation enshrined that they got unborn children that they got a, a right to life, he would oppose that. Doesn't want to know about it. Uh, unsurprisingly, David Seymour from the ACT Party opposes it too. That's why we got him way out on the right side. In some instances, you could swap him around between far left and far right, and you wouldn't hardly know the difference. Um, then uh, you got uh, Marima Fox uh, from the Maori Party. She supports the idea of uh, an unborn child having a right to life. But that's a confused message because earlier on she says that abortion should be liberalized. So getting two messages does not sit well with me. We, we need to know where these people stand. Now, some of the positions of the political parties. We're now talking about the parties and we're not going to go much longer. I do appreciate your, your patience. This is very, very important. Friend, New Zealand is hanging in the balance once again. We will determine the next lot of leaders for the next three years and God's counting on you and God's counting on me. National says, I think what the abortion supervisory committee means to liberalize it, meaning the abortion law, and we wouldn't do that, Bill English says. Um, this is not a written statement. This is a verbal statement. And then Amy Adams, who was the Minister of Justice, says wholesale reform of abortion law is not something we are currently looking at. Labor says, I support women's choice. It does need to be reviewed and upgraded. I agree. This is Andrew Little when he was leader. I agree with Jacinta Ardern that we should not have it in the Crimes Act. It is not a crime. It is not a crime. How big a crime can you commit to invade an unborn child's personal space and to rip it apart piece by piece? I'm sorry, there's just no nice way to put it. It's just no nice way. Let's not euphemize it and say, oh, well, these little babies have all just slipped away. No, they've not slipped away. They were all murdered. And then in one or two instances, we might have reason to say, well, look, this birth is not going to work out well for the mother. We might have to look at something in medical professions. No, but when politicians get involved, uh, it's just incredible.
So New Zealand first believes that abortion law should be safe, uh, abortions rather, should be safe, legal, and rare. Good on you, Winston. Safe, legal, and rare. Any change must be subject to a binding government or citizens-initiated referendum after a period of public debate, debate. Then the Greens say our full policy on this is part of the woman's policy. So these guys have a woman's policy. They got their manifesto, and then from that flows the policy. And most of them have, all of them have a manifesto, um, and all of them have got policy on a lot of things. Now, he's only just starting. He doesn't have much policy. He's only just starting, and he doesn't have much position. Uh, he doesn't have a position on a lot of issues yet. Well, he's just starting out, but we already know what sort of a bloke that he is. Um, because when it comes to euthanasia, it's just like, just blow them away. You know, it's just a, an incredible thing. Um, so, ACT says our abortion laws are archaic. They should be more than, uh, modernized. I've always believed in personal choice that extends to the issue of abortion. Morally, abortion is about a woman's body and her choice, says David Seymour, who sits out on the far right, and we're going to push him out a bit further. <laughs> David? You're almost off the chart. Gosh, you're nearly falling off there, man. <laughs> he, says, uh, he says, the right thing to do is to reform abortion laws to reflect what is actually happening. Women oppose choice, uh, exercise choice for their own reasons. If I did not already have a bill on an important moral issue in the member's bill, I would seriously consider a bill on this issue, says David. What's the bill he's talking about? Euthanasia bill. He's driving that. Now, previously, the death with dignity bill came out of this camp. How many of you remember Marion Street? Labour MP pushing the death with dignity bill. Then it had, it had one other go. It failed. And the far right guy wants to bring it out again. These people have no regard for human life whatsoever. They say, we're here to help people. No. Some of them around the back want to kill people. They want to kill ba babies. They want to kill the old, the infirm, and the depressed. It's just a disaster. Of course, it's a, it's a strong statement uh, that, that it's, it's, yeah, they, they don't want to kill, but legislation will determine whether these people will live or die. Euthanasia, and I'll close with this. Decriminalization of euthanasia. What is euthanasia? It's assisted suicide. Um, it's people who have got a terminal illness that want to die earlier rather than die naturally, assisted suicide. Uh, assisted suicide has been legal in the Netherlands, which, by the way, is a very, very liberal country, very liberal. I've lived there for a year and a half, so I've, I, I've got first-hand experience of how liberal that nation is. Uh, it's just, in terms of a plane, if you were to stretch it out, and it's just way, 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 way over here. Belgium, the same. They started out with just a few safeguards, and then, you know, it's like the slippery slope. They just remove safeguards and remove safeguards, and now... They're blowing away young people who are tired of life. It's almost children. Uh, that's how liberal the laws have become. Once you open the door to something, 
it's not going to stay there. Remember, it's the slippery, slippery slope. People might say, oh, well, let's have a discussion around it. It's all very, very well to have a discussion. But once we open the door, crack, and the devil gets his foot in the door, he will just pry it open wider and wider and wider. And somebody has got to shut the trolley thing. So decriminalization of uh, uh, euthanasia. Well, Bill English opposes that. Jacinta Ardern, surprise, surprise, supports it. Uh, Winston Peters is undecided uh, on this issue. Um, James Shaw at the far end uh, supports it. David Seymour at the other far end supports it. Uh, and Marama Fox opposes uh, uh, this thing, but she would like to have a discussion around all of that. And that basically brings me to the end of our discussion here today. I did tell you that a lot of it was, uh, I guess, uh, some doctrine and theology, but a lot of it just information to kind of educate ourselves. I have not told everything because I don't know everything. I can only tell what I know and what I'm able to fit into uh, the, you know, the time slot that we have. So I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your attentiveness. Uh, we're going to wrap up here. We're going to pick things up again on uh, Sunday next week, God willing. You know, if God changes it, then it's his prerogative to do so. But for now, that's about as much as what we've got time for. So.